My name's Ella Robertson. I'm the Managing Director of One Young World, the global forum for young leaders. I'm also the author of the upcoming book, How to Make a Difference. And this is The China Current with James Chow. Hi, I'm James Chow, host of The China Current. Thanks for joining this podcast. If you know anything about China and Chinese and Chinese culture, you'll know that the number eight is arguably the most auspicious of all. The Beijing Olympics, which was held in 2008, opened up on the 8th of August of that year, which of course is shorthand written as 8808. Ella Robertson is a close friend of mine and she knows all about the auspiciousness of number eight. And she knows about the Beijing Olympics because she was there with her family at the time. She's written a book called How to Make a Difference, the definitive guide from the world's most effective activists, many of them from the One Young World family. She co-writes this book with Kate Robertson, who's her mother and the co-founder of One Young World. And it's going to be great. I can't wait to read this book myself. You can pre-order it on Amazon. I can see it in front of me. In fact, what Amazon describes this book as is a practical roadmap to modern day activism created by the brilliant minds behind the world's biggest campaigns. This is our conversation with Ella Robertson. We're a couple of months away in London where we're going to have the first ever One Young World since the first One Young World. So we're so excited because it's our 10th anniversary and we're bringing it home to London. We've gone all over the world since then from Bangkok to Bogota and we know that this year being our 10th anniversary and in our own backyard has to be incredibly special. So you'll be seeing everyone from senior business leaders to senior royalty uh, and a hint of celebrity and glamour as you would normally expect at a One Young World Summit. But this will also be the most international gathering ever to happen in the UK other than the 2012 Olympics. So young leaders will be coming in from every corner of the world um, and we look forward to welcoming them and making sure that they leave knowing that London is still, Brexit or no Brexit, the centre of the world, the place to do business and the capital of culture. Do you mean that? Absolutely. So what's changed with One Young World? And we'll get back to Brexit later. But what's changed with One Young World if you look back to its first formations, to how it's become today? And if you saw it as a person, how old would One Young World be emotionally? I think One Young World would probably be a mature 28. So it would still be young and vibrant with all of the millennial energy and zest and vigour that you would associate with what we do, but with a street smart, wise eye to how the world works, to how to influence business, how to influence politics. And also with a very, I would say, keen eye and sharp vision as to the future of international development and social entrepreneurship. I think we have a really great finger on the pulse of where those things are going. Um, but in terms of how One Young World's changed, I mean, the key word would be growth. You know, we've gone from an event of about 850 people in 114 countries, and the event itself is now 2,000 people from 190-something countries. And so our network around the world is about 12,000 people. Um, we've had everything from senators elected to Nobel laureates nominated, businesses, charities, Olympic gold medals. It's the most incredible network that you could wish to be a part of. It's, it's incredible because I've been more than a couple of times and been a part of it as well. Absolutely, you're part of the heritage. Yes, <laughs> and back in those days, so 2011 was the first time I participated, mm-hmm. which I think was the second year. It was, yes. And that was Zurich. And in 2011 also, a couple of months before then, I was in Mali 
and there was a gathering of young people there. I was not quite one of them already at the time, uh, a little bit older. But I remember with the Chinese young people, they would always sit together. Yes. And and they would sit together. They would speak to each other in Chinese. They would just move in a pack. And it's not because they didn't want to be uh, integrated with everybody else, but. They were, I think they culturally were very shy. They were very different in those days. And I went up to them and I said, "You've come all the way to West Africa. There are 200 people inside this room. Those are 200 relationships that you can take away with you. And for you, 20 on this table who are all Chinese, get connected online. Make sure you see each other when you're in Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Wuhan, wherever you happen to." To live, and that would happen. But use this time to be part of the world.、Mm-hmm. China is still new to the world. You talk about nineteen forty-nine, but you also talk about after the Cultural Revolution and relearning how to walk and run again, or reintroducing itself to the world within sort of the modern Chinese,、um, you know, iteration of of China's identity. Yeah, I think that the young people there. Really different today, and it's because of initiatives、mm. like One Young World, which is really neutral and very, very encouraging, and gives you yet a high-level platform to work off of.、Um, what do you think the change has been, or has there has there been that same change for you?、Um, you remind me of a conversation that、um, the late great Kofi Annan had with a Chinese delegate in Bangkok. Uh, where he did a Q and A, and she asked a question from the floor, and she said, "You know, I'm I'm at a I think she's at Essex Business School. I'm very proud of being at business school in Europe,、uh, but I'm from mainland China,、um, and I feel there's an absence of China in gatherings like this. I feel like Chinese voices aren't heard." And Mr. Anand says, "Well, you're right. You know, we do need to hear more from China. But if you'd come to a conference like this 20 years ago, you wouldn't have been here. And you know, the rate at which China has reintroduced itself and integrated into."、Um, Parastatal and multilateral affairs has been so rapid,、um, and you know more British children did a Mandarin A level than a German A level last year in the United Kingdom. Really? So, indeed, yeah. And、um, so we really are seeing such a rapid shift as the world turns its attentions to China.、Uh, I used to ask people, you know, when they thought China would really take its place as the global superpower and sort of supersede the United States. And I think we all agree that that's probably happening much faster than anyone imagined, owing to the rise of Donald Trump. No one expected America to willingly vacate that seat,、uh, but that's m- m- very much what is happening with some of the isolationist policies we're seeing today.、Um, so, in terms of Chinese young people, I mean, I, I'm so impressed by the amount of entrepreneurial spirit you see in China now. And I asked someone recently in New York, which you can hear in another episode on the China Current, the interview with Tunzi, the dumpling chain in the East Coast.、Mm-hmm. Um, I said, you know. These three or four Yale graduates. Why are you doing this dumpling restaurant? What did your parents think? And they said, you know, if you think about safe choices for careers, it wasn't so much because they were boring. The Chinese like their children, especially in more before maybe than now,、uh, to pursue because. They come out of times of revolution and uncertainty、mm. and wars and conflicts and civil wars as well. So for them, it wasn't so much that they didn't want them to become the Jack Mars and Mark Zuckerbergs, even if they had the talent to.、Mm-hmm. Not everybody has that talent, of course.、Um, but because they wanted to give them the best chance at succeeding and and earning a salary and、yeah. having stability. And it was the first time I thought about it. 
that way. And it's the first time the way that you recount the story of Mr. Anand and the Chinese delegate that he didn't look so much at the now, but compared it to the recent past. Yeah, exactly. How much has changed. And I, and I think, no, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of Western parents who want their children to pursue, you know, traditional safe careers. It's not just in China. But I do think that... Um, the emerging middle class in China, as you say, has a greater sense of economic insecurity or concern of economic insecurity that makes people seek out more traditional paths. Um, but I, but I think on the whole that this generation of young Chinese people who are coming up are very worldly. They're very confident about China's place in the world, and they're very proud of it. And I think patriotism can be um, a tremendous force for good and a tremendous tremendously powerful force in terms of economic development. Are young Chinese people arrogant? No, I don't think so. I think they're actually much more humble than their Western counterparts. I mean, Confucius said, you know, um, <laughs> humble makes smart, proud makes stupid, you know, I mean, like, very much like the case. Like, I, I genuinely think that um, the cultural... I'm not sure if you use those words exactly, but you're capturing the spirit. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, I'm sure, I'm like, it sounds much better in Chinese, I'm sure. No, um, you, you make it sound really cool. You make it, you make it sound very Instagram friendly. You could friendly. put that on a t-shirt, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think that'll be our next t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, but, um, uh, the... I do. I when I meet Chinese young people, I do think they're much more humble in the way that they come across, and I think that the society is more humble. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think it's in a Chinese kid's nature to brag about their accomplishments, um, whereas you might meet an American kid who felt more comfortable doing so. Let's, Again, and this is not to talk in stereotypes. It's just I, I speak as I find. Let's take you back eleven years to Beijing. Where you went with your family to (laughs) tell people what that means. Uh, Let's go China. And you heard that because Uh, that is like the main chant when you go to see China represent itself at international sporting uh, sporting matches. There there aren't many other chants; they just have that one. Uh, But then, if you sort of say back to them, "Yingo Dio," which is "Let's go England," they get very excited. Um, So, so it's fair. Yeah. So we know we learn we learn a lot about um, you know I think I think the way in which. Western and uh, other nations may support their sporting teams even when it's slightly tame comes across as kind of football hooliganism in China (laughs) like they're like oh wow these people are so loud and obnoxious Uh, but you know they and and, you know we spent a lot of time in the athletic stadium um, and there weren't tons of Chinese um, athletes winning medals in athletics it's not it's not China's um, greatest forte but when they did win medals, I mean, the, the chant... Don't worry, they won everywhere else. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, there was, there was a lady, I think, who won shot put. And the, the chance for her, I mean, the whole stadium was absolutely electric. It, it's incredible to be part, n- not just of the Beijing Olympics, but to be in the middle mm. of lots of people, humanity. Yeah. No matter which country yes, they absolutely. come from. A lot of people have described the Beijing Olympics as China's coming out party to the world. I actually, because I was on television at the time and was doing every other day on the morning show, I actually thought it was China's coming out party to itself. That it suddenly yeah. discovered that it was better than they thought it was. I that think, they I, were. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I remember going to the bird's nest and there were all these people who'd come all the way across China with their children who didn't have Olympic tickets and who couldn't have dreamt of affording Olympic tickets who had come just to take a photo of their family with the Olympic Stadium in this great moment for China. And I think, you know, you can, you can, 
mirror this with multiple sporting occasions. Like I think the German World Cup, a lot of German people would say that that was the first time that they felt they were able to be patriotically German since the Second World War. And South Africa, certainly, when they hosted the World Cup in 2010, you know, they were like, wow, we can pull this off. Like we are, we are, you know, we're not a third world country. We're a nation that can pull off the world's greatest sporting event. Did, did you go to that one um, too? No, but my family did. And, you know, One Young World takes a lot of inspiration from sport and from the Olympic movement. Everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon mm -hmm. when that train started rolling. What would you say to young people, not just young people who are listening to our conversation right now, how do you How do you get your train rolling in the first place if you don't have a One Young World behind you? The book that, that Kate and I are bringing out in August is called How to Make a Difference. And it really shows that anyone can be an activist, you know, whether it's about saving your local playground as a mum, you know, or about bringing in a new bill in Parliament, you know, whether, whether your ambitions are big or small everyone can make a difference and it doesn't matter what the cause is you know your cause might be air quality or it might be elephants or it might be um you know uh labor standards for tea pickers in indonesia it doesn't matter what it is as long as you're passionate about it that's what's going to make the difference it'll be your passion that will drive the change i've seen the jacket yeah it looks fantastic thank you and it comes <laughs> judge up, the book by its cover it's fantastic judge the book by its cover. it's brilliant um i know it's brilliant because it's written by two incredible women who have huge compassion and have made it work themselves for many more people than just themselves and it comes out 11 years ago to the day from the opening ceremony of the beijing olympics august 8 2019 yes, and that was auspicious date <laughs> the eighth day of the eighth month it's a very chinese thing apart from zhongguo jiayou and inguo jiayou as well i was thinking there that you know the reception that people had to you saying come on england uh, with the equal fervor yeah. it shows that uh, sports is the great unifier or Absolutely. one of the great unifiers i just guess the last thought for me to tie this up would be as we think about the traditional space race of yeah. the 60s between the then soviet union and the united states mm. and everyone's now talking about china and the united states and these trade disputes and and a potential full-blown trade war that i think a lot of people would say is already uh, already crept into mm -hmm. um i would say that if china is to become the global superpower and i don't think it needs to be i think we should all it would be wonderful if all of us were as powerful as each other yeah. that would be so <laughs> nice and equal but i would say the moment china's coming out would be when it hosts the one young world summit of its own what do you think yeah i you know i i i can't wait to give more young chinese people the opportunities to share their perspectives with the world i think it's so important it's so critical that they have the opportunity to learn about the world but the world has, to, has the opportunity to learn about them as well so in the meantime, we'll come back to you for the book in August, August 8th, 2019, How to Make a Difference by Kate Robertson and Ella Robertson. Which can be pre-ordered on Amazon. Right now? <laughs> yes, absolutely, right now. Go there right now to that link and we'll link it below this podcast as well. And otherwise, I will see you in October for the 2019 Summit here in London. Ella Robertson, thank you very much. I can't wait, thank you.